Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Last class session was The Fortune Cookie and this class session we're going to talk about The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Um, it, this this movie is, is pretty much exactly what the title... I don't really have to tell you much about this movie. It's, it is a Billy Wilder original Sherlock Holmes tale. Um, and there's this kind of mix of traditional Sherlock Holmes and, and, and this Wilder touch. Now, the reason Billy did this film is because Billy had, had had held a long-time fascination with the character of Sherlock Holmes. Um, and he had always wanted to do something with the character, but nothing had really come together. Um, specifically, the way he wanted to explore the character, there was no way that could have been done on screen for much of Billy's career. However, he could do a lot of those things in a play. So at one point, he approached uh, many playwrights in London about doing a whole a Sherlock Holmes musical for Sir Arthur Conan, Conan Doyle's 100th birthday. And then that project fell through. Um, he revisited this idea of, of doing something with the Holmes character um, after Irma LaDuce, but that didn't come together either. And then finally, he puts together this four-part anthology with the intent of it being a roadshow release. Now, if you're not familiar with the roadshow release, um, there's, actually, um, there's actually a really good... Um, part of the electronic uh, press kit for um, The Hateful Eight about the Roadshow release um, that Samuel Jackson presents. But um, I'll do my best to kind of sum it up here, and if you want more, you can find it there. Um, basically, the idea was to make the release of a film an event. It, it, you know, they would usually be these big, massive, long, epic films. Um, the audience would get a playbill, basically, just like you would at a Broadway play. Um, they would be shown only at the best theaters um, in town, um, and I believe they would be taken on tour. But I'm not. A, I'm a, I may be wrong about that. So make sure you check in with the with the Samuel Jackson um, thing about roadshow releases because he his information is probably better better than mine. Um, so that's the plan. He's going to do this big, massive four-part anthology, make it a roadshow release. It's going to be a big deal. You know, I mean, this was to be Billy Wilder's big, big movie. Um, and then an editing problem came up. So, which, which would be surprising because if you listen to the editor, Ernest Walters, describe the editing of this film, he talks of it as just taking the clappers off. You know, um, you know, the clapper is the slate that says, you know, the guy comes in and he says, uh, scene 101, take one marker and then and then claps it and then he and then he walks off. Right. OK, so so Walters described the editing of this film as just having to take the clappers off of each shot and stitching them together to the shot before. And then it, it just fit together beautifully. In fact, he said he said he had so much spare time on his hands that he would just go to the set, which normally he doesn't enjoy doing. But this is a Billy Wilder movie. You know, how do you pass up being on a Billy Wilder set? Right. So the the initial edit goes very, very simply. Um, but the first rough cut was at least three hours and 20 minutes long. And Ernest Walters says it was closer to four hours. And the issue with that is that the roadshow distribution format had really waned in popularity, especially in the United States. So United Artists um, decided to just release it as a standard film, but that meant that there was no way they could release it at three hours and 20 minutes. That just wasn't really being done at the time. And it's still rare to get a movie over three hours long released into theaters. You know, it, it, people just normally don't want to do that. Um, so that meant that the film had to be cut down. 
And what Billy says in Nobody's Perfect is he says, when I saw the way they had cut it, I had tears in my eyes. It seemed longer when they made it shorter. This is what Billy Wilder says in conversations with Billy Wilder. He says, I was going to Paris. And this is this is how he lost control of the film. He says, I was going to Paris to shoot a picture there. And I told the editor I I had then final cutting rights. I told him, I trust you. You know what I would like. Cut this, cut that. And then when I came back, it was an absolute disaster the way the way it was cut. The whole prologue was cut out. A half sequence was cut. I had tears in my eyes as I looked at the thing. And then some of the stuff that was cut out, the negative disappeared. We cannot find it because a lot of people have asked me they would like to show the whole picture the way it was. We cannot find it, which is really sad because I would love to see the the original version of this. I I, I enjoy really well done um, anthologies. I know, I know. Typically, that's not a that's not a genre that does well. Um, but I would be fascinated to see Billy Wilder's three-hour anthology of a Sherlock Holmes film. Um, the Kino Lorber distributed version of this, a Blu-ray of this film um, has a lot of the deleted scenes. Um, some of them just the video because the audio has been lost. Um, so there is that. Um, so you can watch much of this film. Not it, It's not pieced together, you know, like a... But 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 many of the of the deleted scenes are there. Um, Billy says this is this is why he lost control of the picture. And this also comes from conversations with Billy Water. He says never do a picture with episodes because some of them can be cut out. Episodic is no good. You know, like 20 minutes can go out and they had preferences in which sections to cut preferences different than my own. And that's the issue with doing an anthology or even just something that is or even just a standard story that is structured episodically. The episodes can come and go. It doesn't matter, you know, because because there's no cause and effect. There's no built because this happens. This happens. You know, if this, then that there's no, you know, because because that's normally how a story is structured. He talks about how those setups and payoffs, you know, we've talked about how everything you set up in act one has to come back by act three. You know, this idea of cause and effect but with something episodic or something anthology all of that's lost and so you know stuff can just get cut out and it makes no difference and especially when you have a filmmaker who who isn't there to fight for his film you know he shouldn't you know if i think billy thought he was safe probably you know i mean you're talking about one of the greatest filmmakers of a generation and billy figured well you know they won't you know, they won't screw me up so I can go to Paris and shoot this thing and then come back and it'll be great. But what he underestimated was because it was anthology that stuff could just be cut, which is really sad. Um, so that's how Billy Wilder's, you know, big film got ruined. But I want to talk about Billy's ability to troubleshoot because there were things that Billy was able to do, not just in this film, but over the course of his career to to keep films from getting ruined, um, you know, by, by being a good director, you know, the first thing about troubleshooting that Billy Wilder says in nobody's perfect is sometimes the scenes that play beautifully in the typewriter don't work on film. And that's one of the first things you have to realize. There are some things that read beautifully on the page that just come across wonderful. And then when it actually comes to the physical doing of it, it doesn't work at all. Um, you may remember that for a brief moment, I, 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 I had a Hitchcock University um, YouTube channel. I mean, the channel still exists, but I'm not I'm not uploading content to it. That 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 project really ran out of steam, and I just kind of 
I had to I had to can it due to due to just life happening. And um, the very first one that I posted was a very valuable lesson for me, one that I hadn't had since film school and one that I had quite frankly forgotten about. And that is you need to read your dialogue out loud because you may write beautifully on the page, but it's not going to sound right when people say it. And it, and, and uh, actors have a really tough time wrapping their words around dialogue that is unnatural. And that's just one example of things that, that, that work well on the page, but don't work on film necessarily. But there's, there's, there's other, there's, there's, there's a very simple process that Billy kind of boiled everything down to. And he outlines it here in, in, in an interview from Billy Wilder interviews entitled the message in Billy Wilder's fortune cookie. Well, nobody's perfect. He says, we rehearse and I have a visual conception in my head that I verify on the set. So first he rehearses it and sees, and sees how, how it's working. He says, sometimes it occurs to me, for example, that instead of cutting, I can continue the shot and preserve the fluidity of the action. Or maybe I ask myself if the audience member will see what I want him to see. Or if this or that detail risks not being perceived. Should I underline this or that? Should this man be in the first shot? Am I set up well to move to the next shot? I know directors who come with huge books where each shot is designed down to the ashtray on a table. That was never my method. Even though I do lots of work at home where I prepare and conceive the film beforehand, I need to see things take life, verify on site, and sometimes change. But I don't improvise, of course, neither the plot nor the dialogue. This is what Billy figured out. He figured out there's this kind of perfect tension between planning ahead of time and then seeing how it plays out. And once he saw how it plays out, he, he got very good at figuring out okay, this is working here, that's not working there, or, or no, we need to emphasize this more, or, you know, whatever. It just comes down to seeing things work out. You know, it, it, it comes down to showing up on set, rehearsing it, having a feel for what's going on. You know, and, and I think this, this is where, where division of labor may be important. You know, I mean, um, you need to have one person on set who's just there to just make sure it's working, right? And usually that's the director. Um, and it helps especially for Billy that he was also the writer because he had taken all that time to kind of figure it out in the first place. But, you know, just this idea of just slow down, rehearse it, see how it plays out. And, and then you may discover things in that rehearsal that aren't working, but then you're not wasting anybody's time because now you can change course before people are are already in the process of doing things you know you haven't told them already okay set this up here set that up there and set this up there meanwhile i'm going to rehearse and then you rehearse and you come back and you say sorry everything's changed you know that's just a waste of everybody's time it's much better to take a break take take a pause see it and then react to what you've seen now there's one other thing here that billy seemed to figure out in troubleshooting that just kind of became a general rule for him. And I think it's really, really worth talking about. But ironically, I was first, I was first introduced to this concept um, by reading Nobody's Perfect. And there's a, there's a, a quote in there by Christopher Chalice, who was um, Billy's director of photography on the, the private life of Sherlock Holmes. He says, another thing I found very interesting with him was, was that he was primarily a writer I think the written or the spoken word was all important to him, and the actors had to do it his way. I mean, he didn't. I mean, he didn't let them have a lot of freedom. He insisted on them playing lines the way he wanted them played. 
He would play quite important dialogue on people's backs with them walking away from you because he knew exactly what the impact would be. Whereas most directors would go around to the other side and shoot it the other way in case it wasn't right. Billy, Billy intentionally broke a rule because he knew exactly how it was going to work that way. And Christopher Chalice couldn't wrap his mind around it. Well, I was very lucky to find in, um, in the documentary series, Billy, How Did You Do It? He says, one of the laws is the one that emotions that are of startling strengths, vehement reactions are best shot and acted by the actors with their back to the camera. Nobody can portray what the audience can imagine. And also it's a little painful. If you're a witness to a scene like this, if someone sits there and tells you something that's so horrifying, I will then get up and walk back and not look at the face of the person, but at the back. He says, use the knife, but don't twist it. Which is, it, 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 I had never even thought about that. It is, instead of demanding that an actor go somewhere that maybe, uh, I mean, especially if you're dealing with an actor who isn't that good, who maybe can't get there, just shoot their back because the audience is going to imagine their reaction. And it does add, as he says, this, uh, a slight painful quality to it. You know, it's, it's this kind of, it, it, it's this beautiful way of helping your actor. Um, there's, there's all kinds of ways to help, our, to help our actors. You know, maybe you light them in silhouettes so that their face isn't so obvious or, you know, I, the, you know, the lighting can set a mood and a tone that, that combined with the actor's performance can, can really bring things out. But, but I never even thought of, of, of shooting, shooting the actors back instead of, you know, letting those emotions play on camera. And it's not something to do all the time, I don't think, but there is something about that. Now, he, he follows that up in Billy, How Did You Do It? with another interesting quote. He says, one of the most difficult things to photograph and photograph it believably is when you're on some person and you want to photograph that, that person as you're, as you're photographing them has an idea. It's much better the person comes into the room and says, I had an idea off stage, have them off camera when they have the idea, which again was something I never thought about. There's, but, but he outlines two very important things that are just sometimes very hard for actors to do. Sometimes it's incredibly difficult to get an actor to have that kind of vehement reaction or whatever. And so just shoot them, just shoot them with their back to the camera. Plus, well, the other thing he doesn't say is, is that also allows you to do what Hitchcock suggested, which is if you need an actor, if, if, if your scene revolves around a beat, you know, where, where, where there's a change in something, a change in reaction, a change in emotion, you know, you know, sometimes it's best to put, put, to put your actors in situations where, where that beat can be obvious. You have them go from smiling to downtrodden or, you know, um, he says, he says, if, if, if someone, if you have an actor sitting at a, at a desk in an office and they need to be surprised by somebody, the best thing to do would be to have them reaching across the desk for something when the, when, when that person bursts in, because now they're in a, in a vulnerable position and that allows them to communicate that vulnerability. What Billy doesn't say here is that if you combine these two ideas, if you have them turn their back, then when they come back to the camera, there can be a whole nother set of emotions and that can have a, and, and, and if that plays into your scene, you know, if there's a, if there's a change there that's important to get across, then, then, then that coming back can really help, help bring out that beat, that change. Um, but then this idea of, 
I never really thought about how how difficult it is to have an actor on the screen say, oh, I have an idea. That's just like we just don't normally do that. You know, (laughs) that's a very hard thing to do naturally because I don't think a lot of us do it that way. You know, and so it makes much more sense to just put them off camera and then have them come in and says, I got it. You know, I just came up with something, you know. Because they don't have to don't have to think and, you know, contort their face as if they're thinking very hard. And then all of a sudden they and then all of a sudden it clicks, you know, they they don't have to go through all that rigmarole. They can just come in and say, I got an idea. What about this? You know, instead of dealing with that whole, hmm, hmm, you know, and, and I'm sure if you start thinking about scenes where you've seen that. All of a sudden it does seem phony, doesn't it? Maybe you've never thought about it before, but but but, you know, just the you know, the, the actor pacing and, you know, putting, you know, putting their fist in their hand and, you know, their hand on their chin and they're rubbing their temples and they're having to come up with all this business. And instead of doing that, save them the trouble and keep the story moving, you know, with its efficiency by having, having them do all of that stuff off camera and then come in with the idea. It's so genius. I'd never thought about it before, but I think it's absolutely brilliant. All right, that's all we have for The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Um, Next up, we have Avanti, and then the front page, and then the final class session is going to be a double feature, just like we started with. Um, We're going to do Fedora and Buddy Buddy. Um, And that's all we have. Um, Thank you so much for listening to Hitchcock University. Um, if you would like to reach out to the podcast, you can email us at hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. There is also a Facebook page, Hitchcock University facebook page and then of course there's twitter which is at hitchcock underscore u the letter u is in university all lowercase thank you again for listening to hitchcock university where you learn filmmaking from the masters my name is taylor bagel and we will talk to you again in two weeks